Um, okay, we can start. So this talk has a title, and the title is From TMI to MII. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Especially the young people are supposed to know such things, These, this mysterious text language. Who, who, does anybody know TMI? Yes. From too much information to MII. What could that be? I made it up, so it may not be. <laughs> You're close. Uh, <laughs> most important information is MII, the most important information. From TMI, too much information, to MII, the most important information, from the Buddhist point, point of view. So as we all know from being on this planet at this time, we all are spending more and more and more time, it seems, connecting uh, the 24-hour cycle of connecting is becoming like more and more prevalent. Now, it wasn't always this way. I can easily say that because of my age. Uh, we used to have large periods of time during the day when there was nothing, nobody to connect with, uh, at least by some technical you know, like by a phone or something. Phone calls were kind of like where it happened. You'd wait to get home to hear from somebody or call somebody. Now there's this ongoing connection. I'm not sure how I feel about it, but I just want to mention it as what's happening. And for some people, this is like their whole lives. You know, from morning you get up, you the first thing, you check your iPhone to see what's happened lately on Facebook, or you go to sleep, the last thing you do. I'm not putting that down, I'm just mentioning it as sort of what's going on. <clears throat> now, I don't know what the Buddha would say about any of this. He doesn't mention TMI in the Pali texts. You know, it wasn't happening in his day, so we can't, we can't look it up and see what the Buddha would have said. But I imagine he would, you know, kind of scratch his head and wonder about it, as all of us Dharma teachers are. Um, you know, we have to create more and more screens up on the hill so people aren't walking around, you know, taking cell phone messages in the hall and texting out. and. It's just harder and harder to find places where you can't connect. And then when you do find a place where you can't connect, what happens? Anybody notice what happens when you can't connect? You're disconnected. <laughs> you get anxious, I heard that word. Yeah, you get anxious. Oh my God, what's happening? You know, oh, what, what am I missing? So it's an interesting phenomenon, but the Buddha, I believe, would recommend what he always recommended, which was the practice of mindfulness, which is the methodology he taught for penetrating underneath the thick layer of concepts of information that we 
our minds are filled with, whether we're, you know, online or not. <clears throat> to TMI adds to our conceptual understanding of the world, and there may be some fantastic benefits to that. I'm sure there, there, there's a big argument to be made for the incredible benefits of that. However, TMI may not add much to our understanding of ourselves. The Buddha's approach through mindfulness was to come into a more direct relationship with what's here and now, with this mind and this body, as the best way to understand ourselves. You want to know what a human being is, what the meaning of life is, what, what our potential as humans is, look within. That was always his advice. Look within. Find in yourself the sweet joy of the way, is the way he expressed it. So we are born into this body, and we inherit certain tendencies of mind and heart through our DNA, through our genetics. We are subject to our, the conditioning as children of our, our, the grown-ups around us. And much of that has a tremendous influence on us. And as children, we don't have much choice about what comes in, how we are influenced, or what kind of genetics we inherit. And the other thing is that we are not given an instruction manual on, on how to operate a human mind. We have no idea what this human mind is about as a child. It's like we're suddenly put in a new car and we have to figure out how to make it work. That's kind of the situation we're in as children. It's similar to when we first start meditating. Some of you may be just starting, others have started before. We close our eyes and are told to turn our attention inward and perhaps keep our attention with the breathing. And we think, oh, well, piece of cake. You know, how hard could that be, right? I mean, you might have advanced degrees. You might be, you know, the head of your company or you might have accomplished many things in your life. It should be quite easy to stay in touch with something as simple as the breath. But what do you discover? What have you discovered in your own practice when you try to do, when you try to do it? You find it's not so easy. The mind has a mind of its own, is what we like to say. Let me read you something from a, a, a man who teaches here sometimes. He's a Sri Lankan monk, Gunaratana. He says, somewhere in this process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. <laughs> Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels, <laughs> barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. You are not any crazier than you were yesterday. It has always been this way, and you never noticed. 
When we begin to notice how completely out of control the mind is, it can be a little bit alarming. But we see it as good news because you're noticing, finally, something that we call the nature of the mind. And it's not just your mind. All minds are like this. Minds are shameless. They come up with all kinds of things and don't really have an interest in following the breath. You know, have you noticed? They have other agendas. So we get to know this mind and we get to see that taming a mind as wild and crazy as ours means learning a skill, learning some uh, skillful means, you might say, in how to approach this task. In the Zen tradition, they, they give the advice of um, you tame the mind by they, they tell a story about how do you tame a wild horse. You tame a wild horse by giving it a very large pasture to run around in until it runs and runs and runs and then finally exhausts itself and begins to settle down. This is a skillful thing to do, to not get into a struggle with the crazy mind, give it some space to run around a little bit, especially when you first sit down on the cushion. Over time it will settle down. And lucky for us, when we confront this crazy mind, we also, hopefully, and this is why Spirit Rock is so is such a valuable resource for people, it is very, very helpful to have guides, to have teachers who have been there and who know the territory of working with a crazy mind, know how to guide you in navigating this territory, how to tame the wild energies of heart and mind. And gradually, over time, you begin to learn not to be so alarmed, and you learn how to work with the mind, to encourage it, to be here more than somewhere else, more than in the past or in the future. So learning how to work with the body and the mind and the heart, this is MII. This is the most important information I think a human being can possibly have to, to help them in their lives how to work with, how to uh, work with our minds so that we can take that understanding into whatever situation life puts us in. Thich Nhat Hanh often told a story some years ago about leaving Vietnam after the, during the, or after the Vietnamese War and there were all these boats with Vietnamese refugees out on the high seas often in very dangerous situations and not always making it. But he said what often made the difference between a, a boat of, of refugees who made it and those that didn't was the presence of one calm person. One calm person in a boat of hysterical people can make all the difference in the world. One person who has learned how to tame the mind and not believe every thought that runs through it. This is information worth learning and I hope you feel that, that this is a worthy 
enterprise to take on learning about the mind, learning how to work with our minds. One way the Buddha described our situation when we are new to practice is that we are, it's like we're all tangled up in a knot. We're, you know, like a, 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 imagine a knot with a lot of different threads and complexity to it, a big knot. And our job is to untangle this knot. Well, we might think, okay, just pull it. Does that do the trick? Usually not. It, if you've ever untangled a knot, you know that what it takes is settling back, calming down, little patience, and really beginning to pay attention so that you can begin very precisely to start to pull apart the threads that are all tangled up. And in that process, we see the knot coming untangled. We see how we have gotten ourselves in a tangle and we learn how to untangle ourselves. And we do this in a very slow, simple, mindful way, bringing our attention moment to moment to what needs to be untied that got tangled up. So many years ago, when I started to practice this practice, I had already gotten a PhD in psychology. I was working as a therapist. I knew that somehow my calling was to work with people. To uh, I was very interested in, the, in what psychology would teach me about the mind. I was very interested in dreams and the unconscious and all of that was very interesting to me. So I studied, I had a big library full of books about psychology and I wrote a dissertation. I did the whole thing. I had done all that before I started sitting. So when I came to a meditation retreat, I sort of had the attitude, I mean, I was really interested in meditation. I kind of wanted to know what, could, what would happen to a person if they sat in silence for a long period of time. You know, we were all kind of very adventurous in our outlook on these kinds of practices, like, wow, you know, you know, instead of taking drugs, you could do this other thing, and wow, what might happen? You know, maybe my head would explode, but it would be interesting. But having had this uh, psychological background, I sort of thought all my issues were pretty much resolved. You know, I had, I had done my therapy. I had studied this text. I had, you know. So was I surprised? When I sat down, I went on a month-long retreat, and uh, I sat down and saw my crazy mind. But the worst thing was fear. Out of nowhere, I'm in this beautiful setting in Barrie, Massachusetts at the Insight Meditation Center with kind people, wonderful food. Some friends were there. There was nothing in the situation itself that would warrant fear arising. But fear arose in my mind, and it was, I got really scared. I mean, I got really scared. And then I got scared because I was scared. Um, you know, it's hard to sit with fear. 
even when you've done some practice. At that time, I was just freaked out, basically. So I, you know, did everything I could in terms of thinking psychologically about it, and was this the resurfacing of some old trauma, or, you know, maybe I should go into therapy instead of doing a meditation retreat, and I had all these other ideas about how to work with it, and finally, I, and I, finally, my teachers, Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, kept saying, you know, just be present with it, feel the sensations in the body, it's just fear, fear is a mind state, it comes and it goes, it's not necessarily telling you something that is true and that you need to, you know, worry about, it's just fear. Well, easy for them to say. So. Over time, what I finally took on what they suggested, it was what I call mindfulness as a last resort. I'll do everything else, and if that doesn't work, then I'll try mindfulness. And so I was a reluctant participant in what they were suggesting, but I eventually did become more skilled, you could say, at allowing the fear to be known through the lens of mindfulness. And lo and behold, I'm here to report it worked. <laughs> it didn't last forever. I wasn't caught in some, you know, childhood thing that had to be resolved. It was just the understanding that, that we have as we sit, many mind states come. Some of them are quite intense, and fear is probably one of the more intense ones. But I learned a lot from that experience about how to work with an emotion which is both intense and persistent. It went on for some days. Also, I came to understand that in practice, fear is often what accompanies us as we go into unknown places in ourselves. And meditation is definitely a journey into the unknown for each of us. And it will be that way, it will express itself differently for each of us. For some it may be a great, uh, no problem. Others it will be, you know, a long, slow journey because it's, it can be scary. Because we're letting go of the familiar landmarks when we sit in silence at a retreat. We're letting go of landmarks that are familiar. We're letting go of the familiar habits that tell us that we're in control of our lives. So I learned a lot from that experience. And this is how we learn in practice. We learn by meeting these things, not by trying to make them go away or sidestepping them, but actually learning how mindfulness can give us the resources to stay present, to see the impermanent, selfless nature of all that arises. Okay, so in, we, we, we say that, that this meeting is a process of learning. It's not a one-time deal. We have to do it many times. I know some of you have heard this poem by Portia Nelson, but it's such a good illustration of how practice works. I walk down the street, 
there is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. I walk down, chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe someone just left a hole here. It is not my fault. It takes me a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. <laughs> so this is how we learn. By meeting something maybe many times in our practice, not just once, but many times. And each time we encounter it, we may have a different reaction of denial or blame or poor me or it's not my fault or anger or all these things we will find in ourselves. And then eventually it dawns on us. What happens here? What happens? It dawns on us. This has happened before. Why does this keep happening to me? How, what is, oh, maybe there's some way I'm responsible for some of this. It's when we hit that understanding that there's some part we play in this repetition where things can actually begin to change. Do you get that? This is called learning. One of my teachers said, and it was sort of shocking to hear, but it's, and it's still a little shocking, but it's so, it's actually very helpful, so I'm going to tell it to you. He said, take 100% responsibility for your mind's reactions. He didn't say take responsibility for the terrible things somebody else did to you. That, you're not to, it's not about taking responsibility for that. But your mind's reaction to that is 100% your responsibility. That's a pretty direct instruction that can feel kind of startling even. But when we practice with it, it helps so much to see that, yes, it is my mind's reactivity to, that is my piece to understand, nobody else's. So, um, so we learn. And sometimes in, with mindfulness practice, we learn from really simple instructions. We learn from noticing the breath. What could be more simple than that? Not easy, but simple. So years ago, before I went on retreat, I went to, uh, when I was still working as a psychologist, I went to a yoga class, and it changed my life. 
The reason it changed my life was that somebody, I mean, mind you, I had the background as a psychologist and all that study, and somebody, the teacher of the yoga class said um, something like, notice your breath. Follow your breathing. Nobody in my entire life through all the study of psychology, had ever said anything like that to me before. Nobody had ever suggested that following the breath, noticing even that I was breathing, would have any particular significance or impact at all. So I was astonished when I noticed how powerful an instruction that was. Something in me began to wake up when I felt my breath. It was my first experience, I think, of feeling how attention alters our experience of being here. It was a very strong uh, uh, experience, which I still, you know, I still talk about it to this day. Somebody said, follow your breath. Wow, that was amazing. Before that, I had gone on some Zen sashins. I had gone to see some Tibetan lamas. I love these beautiful Japanese roshis that I met. I love the Tibetan lamas that I met. I thought they were amazing, very kind, compassionate people. But the practices they were teaching, I had a real problem with. My first sashin was at a place called Mount Baldy with a man named Sasaki Roshi, who's still alive. When I met him, he was 70, still going strong. He kept saying to us that we were such bad students that if we didn't get better, he was probably going to die that night. You know, he, that's the kind of thing he did. You know, he was like, it was, the, it was the Zen boot camp, I called it. A very strong approach to uh, practice. And um, it was a, it, everything about it was more than I could do, way more. But I was determined to survive. So I did somehow, but I didn't understand a thing. Not a thing. I understood nothing. Absolutely nothing. So we got up in the morning at 3. We went rushing to the room where you hit a drum and sang in Japanese for a half an hour. Mushu, ba 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 That wakes you up. Then you had your first interview of the day with the Roshi. You would rush into his room and do your bows, and he would ask you a question, and you were supposed to answer at 3.30 in the morning. So it was something like, um, tell me, what is your Buddha nature when you hear the sound of a bird? <laughs> I think I said something like, I beg your pardon? <laughs> I mean, I had no completely no understanding of what this was vaguely about. So I didn't do so great on that retreat. Then I went to another Zen, Zen Sashin where the only instruction they gave was um, <clears throat> we, would, we would do some ritual and bowing and chanting and then we'd sit down on our cushions at which point uh, one of the more fierce-looking monks would shout into the room in a very loud voice, die on the pillow, die on the pillow. 
And I would think to myself, okay, obviously this is important. We better get it together, you know. So I'd sit there and just completely like, okay, this is something's going to happen. And of course, nothing happened. I just got tighter and tighter and more and more constipated. And I didn't, just, I didn't, I hadn't a clue again. I had no clue what was. So when I finally got to follow the breath, it was like, oh my God, I can do this, you know? I can actually do this instruction. I can't die on the pillow, but I can follow my breath. And it seems like it has an impact when I do that. So mindfulness is something I love because it has that simplicity in it. It's not about having grand... I mean, you will have, you will have some grand experiences, I promise you, but it doesn't... That's not where it starts. It doesn't start with, you know, some breakthrough to universal truth. It just starts with <laughs> breath, sensations, hearing, thinking, seeing, tasting, smelling. On retreat, those of you who've been on retreat, I know you know this, when you're in silence over a period of days and you're focusing on the breath and the body and the the sense doors of hearing and things get so clear things get so open things get so uh, interesting because of you're more open and you're seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and sensing with a sensitivity that we don't ordinarily have so um, there's something beautiful about the simplicity of it. Sometimes I tell a story also about myself where I, there was a certain point in my practice where I, I was, you know, I'd done some practice by this time and I, I had this idea that somewhere there were secret teachings. It was nice to be so simple and, you know, breath and thinking and, okay, but where's the real juice, you know, where are the secret teachings? And I had this idea that at some point, if I got good enough in my practice, a teacher would come up to me one day, and they'd tap me on the shoulder, and they'd say, you know, come into the back room, you're ready now for the secret teachings, you know. And it would happen, and it would be very amazing. I secretly wanted that to happen. It never happened. But what I began to understand over time was something else that was more useful, actually. And that is that the secret teachings are constantly being given. They're being given to all of us, even as we sit here. The secret teachings are only secret because we keep them from ourselves. <laughs> the only person keeping the secret from ourselves is ourselves is our inability to see clearly what's here. And that's why practice clarifies, practice opens us, practice helps us to see what's actually here.
So this is, you know, the other thing about practice I'll say is that when I started, I thought, you know, a few weekends, a few retreats, and, you know, I'd be on my merry way. You know, it would be like uh, taking a graduate class and some hobby or something, and then I would graduate and I'd go on with my life. Well, <laughs> you know, some 35 years later, here I still am. And you could say, well, that's pathetic. <laughs> or you could say, wow, it must be pretty amazing. And I would go with the latter. It's an amazing path to walk. And it's an amazing uh, journey because it never gets boring. It is always interesting. It is the secret teachings keep coming. You know, there's not an end to what we can learn, wh how we can grow on this journey. <clears throat> and certainly going on retreat uh, heightens that awareness. On retreat, we have silence, stillness, seclusion, and simplicity. Those are very potent uh, catalysts for our own awakening. And they are of great value in a world that thinks that about information as being what's needed. I don't think so. TMI really is TMI. We don't necessarily need more information. The last thing I want to say is that, um, or towards the last, we're getting towards the last. There's always more. Um, <clears throat> I think also this practice has something of great value to teach us about where we are on the planet right now in terms of what I see as the koan for our entire planet, I believe our koan for the entire planet is when is enough enough? When is enough enough? We live in the land of too muchness. We all have more stuff than we'll ever probably use. And it is an important koan. It used to be kind of an interesting koan, but it's become more and more of an urgent koan because we need a, a radical reordering of our understanding of how to be together on this planet. So this idea of enough. Some years ago, I taught a class here at Spirit Rock. Maybe this was 10 years ago or more. I taught a, a class with Gwen Gordon. Some of you may know Gwen. We did a class, a, a 10-week series on, on cultivating simplicity in our lives. I think we were ahead of our times. It was a wonderful class, and we explored these questions of when do we have enough? When have we done enough? And when is who we are enough because in all these areas we think only of more have 
Anybody here, has anybody here done enough yet? You know? We, we just have this kind of, we're immersed in this belief of we need to do more. Who I am is not enough. I need to develop, I need to perfect, I need to become better, I need to develop more skills, more expertise. Is there an end? Now, there's something kind of admirable and wonderful about all that. But it creates this mindset of not enoughness, of deficiency, of not being yet where we need to be, of not having enough, not doing enough, not being enough. So I think this practice has a lot to teach us about enoughness. Those of you who have practiced, I'm sure you've had many experiences of deep contentment where the whole question of enough never arose, where you're in a state of mind where life is moving through you in its own way without any need for improvement on your part. And you have a sense of great satisfaction and peace and contentment. The Buddha had such a, 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 a time when he was a young boy, before all his spiritual journey began. He, he had a moment of, of deep kind of sense of being one with the universe when he was a, a boy sitting on the, in the fields, when the workers were out harvesting the land or whatever. But he was sitting just out in nature, looking at this beautiful tree, and he, he just knew something, that, that ineffable sense of being, of belonging here, of being one with life. And he remembered this later on in his life when he was practicing and working really hard at his practice. And he remembered this incident as a child, and he thought, oh, that was closer to what I'm looking for than all this difficult, hard practice that I'm putting myself through. So it became a pointer to him of something that he realized was of great value. So I think we can all become more aware of the influences around us for more, always more, always more, and begin in our own ways, in our own lives, to come more in touch with when enough is enough. When Gwen and I were teaching that class, I learned something uh, that in, I believe it's Denmark, Anybody here from Denmark? That in Danish there is a word that means more than enough. And it's a commonly held word in the culture which means that people know that you only need three towels. You don't need more. And it's like people can resonate with that as being, oh yeah, that's enough. It sounds so strange to our ears because we resonate so much with always better, always more, always a, we need more towels or better brand or a different quality or something like that. 
And it's the economy we live in. But here at Spirit Rock right now, we are looking at the situation on the planet and trying to bring forward our own concern, our care, our encouragement to all of you to uh, give some reflection to how we are all living. Can we simplify? What would it mean to simplify? What could we, what could we let go of? Uh, we can ask ourselves questions. What is complicating my life right now? What do I need to do to simplify? What are three easy ways you could simplify this week? Write them down. Such a list might say things like, take time to walk around the block. Clean out my bureau drawer. For this one week, buy only what is essential. For two weeks, don't buy anything other than groceries and basic essentials. Here's one. Stop making to-do lists for a week or more. One expert says, I know I'm in trouble if I've got so many things to do that I have to make a list. That seems radical, huh? When an opportunity knocks, ask, will this simplify my life? These are provocative questions. They're meant to provoke new neural pathways, new thoughts. So does anybody have a thought or a question you would like to share with us about anything I've said? It's a little hard to see, but okay. There's one in the back too. There's one in the front and one in the back. Where is? Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I can't give you facts and figures on that, but I can say that it's, it's a process more than a, an established, you know, you don't just click into it, okay, I've done enough. It's more the willingness to engage with that question and the process of it, I think, that is m most important. I think that I know from practice, from being on retreat, for example, that there is a way of being that answers those questions. Every one of them. When is enough enough? When have I done enough? When have I, who I am is enough? And that is the understanding of this uh, coming home to ourselves. When we are truly resting in our essential nature 
those questions don't make any sense. Those questions are born out of thinking that we will find happiness in the external world. When indeed practice asks that we look and turn inward to this inner world and find what we seek inside of us, then those questions will, you know, not be so, uh, they, they won't arise. Thank you. Did you want to say something? Just also, sorry, I broke out into applause on the, that's a little inappropriate. Just, I w wanted to just um, put into the room, um, if it's not obvious to everybody, I humbly just want to make the connection with the standard of living we have, with the global, and that we, by choosing voluntary simplicity, make it possible for other people and creatures to merely live. Mm -hmm. So I just yes. needed to. Thank you. That may. Thank you. Yes, thank you for that beautiful statement of truth. Anyone else? Questions? So that's really all I had to s on my mind tonight, and um, want to thank you for coming and listening, opening yourself to hearing a bit of Dharma. I hope there's been a few useful things for you to uh, take home with you and uh, reflect on or take into your practice. This is how the Dharma works. Little by little we hear things. If something didn't strike you, don't worry about it. You know, that's also true. We don't have to remember everything. But take those things that seem like, wow, that, that's something gets awakened when I hear that. Okay, so let's dedicate the merit. And we do that just by closing our eyes for a moment. And we like to say that as we practice together here in a group, we are not doing this practice for ourselves alone, but we are remembering how we are connected in this world to many, many beings. First and foremost, of course, our families, our loved ones, and our friends and dear ones, our neighbors, our co-workers, many people who will feel the benefit of what we are doing here in our relationship with them. So we remember this intimate connection we have with others and we wish sincerely that all beings benefit from our sincere desire to bring into our own lives greater capacity for truth, for clarity, for wisdom, for courage, for compassion, 
and that may all beings benefit from our sincere wish for the happiness and peace and welfare of our entire planet. May all beings everywhere be at peace within themselves. May all beings everywhere be at peace with one another. And may all beings everywhere live in great peace and harmony. So thank you all for coming, and I think Jack Cornfield will be here with you next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.